I'm looking at you all this morning. You all look good this morning. You have your Sunday best on and smiles on your faces. If I didn't know any better, everything was great in your lives. But the reality is that there are some people in here going through a really hard time. There's suffering that's going on. How do I know that? Because the Bible says that Jesus said himself that in this world you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world, Jesus said. The the freshest news I received of suffering is someone in our church, please pray for them, Um, Debbie and Brian Moore, their grandbaby, little baby girl, Lucy, was born 28 weeks, was born early, and just couldn't make it on her own. And uh, she's now from the arms of Debbie and Brian and their daughter and son-in-law to now in the arms of Jesus face to face. So praise the Lord. But um, this is what's going on right now. And it's hard. Life is hard. But we're reminded in Scripture that the Lord is sovereign. That means he's over everything, the good things and the bad things. He's not the author of evil, but he'll use evil. He uses pain and suffering for his sovereign will. The Bible says that the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's sovereignty. He has it all under control and we can rely on him and depend on him even though we don't understand it when we're going through it. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going through a Psalm 22 written by David. It's a psalm of lament that apparently David went through a very difficult time. Um. We can, we can go to 1 and 2 Samuel and see many instances where it was really hard on David. Life was rough. Uh, I'm going to point out that David was born in 1040 B.C. And then he was anointed by Samuel to be king in 1025 B.C. But he runs from his life from King Saul for about 15 years. I mean, he, surely he had some very painful times of suffering within those 15 years of running for his life before he became king over Judah and then later over all of Israel. And what's amazing is that this was written again around 1000 BC. Fast forward roughly 1,000 years to a hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified on a cross for our transgressions. And Jesus fulfills much of Psalm 22. So we have a dual fulfillment here. David's reality, a lament, but we also have this psalm as a messianic psalm pointing to Christ, that Christ fulfilled. Now we have to ask ourselves, what are the chances of Jesus fulfilling what was predicted about him in the Old Testament? There There was a man who sought to answer this question. His name was Peter Stoner. He served as chairman of mathematics and astronomy departments at collegiate colleges in California. And this man in 1958, Peter Stoner, he he wrote a book entitled Science Speaks regarding the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And in this book, he wrote that the probability of one person accidentally fulfilling just eight prophecies in the Old Testament was 10 to the 17th power. That's one in 100 quadrillion. Now, if you're like me, once you get past a million, it's just numbers. You have no idea how to comprehend that number. So he tries to make it a little more 
easier for us to understand. So he invites the reader to imagine filling the state of Texas with silver dollars, silver coins, about knee high. Our family, were from Texas about five years ago, moved here. It's a huge state. Fill that whole state with silver coins, knee high. Then what you do is you walk in there, randomly pick up a coin, take a black Sharpie, make a check mark on that coin, toss it back somewhere among the sea of coins, and then you go get one of your friends, blindfold one of your friends, and you tell your friend to walk through the state of Texas and randomly pick up the coin with the black check mark on it. The odds that the first coin your friend picks up is the silver dollar with the black check mark is the same probability that Jesus accidentally fulfilled eight prophecies during his lifetime. He fulfilled over a hundred. And we're going to be looking at a few in Psalm 22. Isn't that phenomenal? This is what our faith is based upon, the word of God. Amen? So, as we go through, we have this dual fulfillment. And so with that, I have a question I think would be helpful as we go through this for us that we can apply today. The question is, am I forgotten in my suffering? And is it the end of my story? Because sometimes we feel like that when we're going through a really hard time. God's forgotten me. And this is the end. And we cry out. And so David gives us this amazing framework as we go through. We're going to see, I have titles for certain sections, as to how to suffer well. It's already laid out for us on how to do that. So let's dive in. Psalm 22, the title, you may see a title above the chapter. Remember, this was, these are words to songs. David was a musician. The title of this was written to a familiar tune, perhaps, The Hind of the Dawn, A Female Red Deer perhaps a a well-known tune back then, and he writes music, or he writes words to this, of what he's really feeling. In verse 1 and 2, is what I call the disaster. The initial moment when suffering begins, when you just, you get the phone call, someone passes away, a catastrophe, a crisis. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. This is how we feel. You get that call and you you think, Lord, where are you? I thought you cared about me. And you're not here. It's normal. This is a normal part to start in our suffering where we're going to see how we deal with it. Now, Jesus fulfilled this in Matthew 27, verse 46. If you do want to keep your finger in Matthew 27, we'll go back there, or John 19. You're you're welcome to. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to turn to every scripture, every fulfillment, but just a heads up. But Matthew 27, 46, Jesus reaches back. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He reaches back to his great, 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 28 times great-grandfather, David, his words, and shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus expressed his feelings of abandonment from God the Father as the world's sins, past, present, future, were placed on him. One of the best 
most amazing sentences ever written was 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that said, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And at that moment was this separation of abandonment. Now also, we have to put ourselves in that situation. Perhaps Jesus calls this out, which I do, I do believe, so that as people watched him suffer, they would be reminded of the song and they'd see Jesus fulfilling the song right before their eyes. That would have been amazing. It'd be like, it's a familiar tune, it'd be like if I sang the first two words of Amazing Grace right now and just stopped. What would you be thinking? The rest of the verse, right? How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. You'd want to be continuing that song. That's what I believe happened. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say, but we're going to go there. You're going to see where we're going with that. So keep that kind of planted in your mind as we go. The next, after the disaster, then we have, once the kind of, we get our balance after the phone call or the catastrophe, then we we remember. We remember the faithfulness of God. So this next section, verses 3 through 5, I've titled The Remembrance. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. And David's writing this down, and he's looking back at the fathers of Israel. He's thinking about Abraham. He's thinking about Moses hemmed in at the Red Sea. He's thinking about Elisha. And, but not Elisha, that would be after him, but the fathers of Israel. And he's remembering the faithfulness of God that came through. And that's what we have to do after the crisis hits. Then we remember, Lord, you were faithful to me here. You were faithful to me at this point when I thought it was over. I remember you, and I'm going to cling to you as I weather this storm. The next section that we have after that is, because this is the thing with suffering, isn't it? That it doesn't just um, it doesn't just end right away. Sometimes it does, but it's it endures. Unfortunately, and at that point, then we kind of sink in and out of depression. Don't we? This next section, this verses six through eight, is what I've titled the depression. But I am a worm, not a man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You see, you just have this depression to where it's, you're thinking, God, I thought you were here, you're, you're with me, but I'm still going through this. I'm a, I feel like I'm a fool because I'm believing that you're going to help me, but I'm still here. But we need to remember, God is not some 30,000-foot-high deity who doesn't care. He does hear our voice, and he does listen to us. And at verse 7, they separate with the lip, they wag the head. That's the sticking their tongue out. I mean, just that's what David feels like. People are just saying, I'm the biggest fool ever for trusting in God and they're just sticking their tongue out at me. 
And this was just what I feel like. We get discouraged. Satan cannot take away our salvation, praise the Lord, John 10. But he can keep our eyes off the Lord, and he uses that suffering period when he does that. He takes our eyes off God. Now, Jesus fulfills this in verse 8 on Matthew 27, verses 41 through 44. But I'm going to start at 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. And then Matthew pulls from Psalm 22 and 43 here. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So Jesus fulfills this part of the song. And then after that depression or during it, we're kind of, we still lean in to our relationship with Christ because that's what sustains us through it. So this next section, verses 9 through 10, is what I've titled the relationship. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon when, you made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. This reminds me of Psalm 139 that says, You knew my unformed substance, and in your book were all the days that were ordained for me, when yet there was not one of them. In other words, God foreknew you. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And it is perfect under his sovereign will. And that's what David's saying. You you have this amazing plan for me and you've drawn me to you. Jesus said that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father sends him to me. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's drawing to the Lord. Some of you, maybe even now, are growing up in a home with a mom and dad that are teaching you the scriptures. Praise the Lord. And some of you grew up in that type of family. David did. Where he just kept hearing the word of God over and over and over. So we need to get... What a blessing, because it builds a foundation of truth in our mind when we're going through suffering that we can pull to. We can say, no, many are the afflictions of the righteous, Lord, but you deliver them all out of them all. If I should say my foot has slipped, Lord, your loving kindness will hold me up. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You start firing off verses. You remember the relationship. But again, this period of suffering, it keeps going on. The pain still is there. The hurt is there. It's maybe it's physical that you're dealing with this morning. I have been there. I have been to the point of the end of my rope on physical suffering, and my heart breaks for you if you were there. But hang on. 
because Jesus walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death if you are born again and have a relationship with him. But you have this next section, 11 through 18, of the suffering. This is reality. It's hard. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. These bulls in the Galilean area were just massive, and David's writing about them. He feels like he's just surrounded. Verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. You ever see the National Geographic clips of the deer running for its life and a pack of wolves or hyenas just chasing that thing down? And it will, they will not stop until eventually the deer tires out, falls down, and then those wolves, the pack just encircles them and then just starts biting at it. This is what David feels like. Remember when Jesus, and Jesus, we see a fulfillment of him doing this when he was handed over to Pilate, and Pilate has him scourged, and the Roman soldiers are surrounding Jesus, and they take a whip with sharp ends on it, and they start whipping him, and flesh is being torn off his back, and they're mocking him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within me. Suffering makes you feel this way. You've got nothing left. And you think about when Jesus, after the scourging, and then he's, he has to carry his own cross on top of the hill. And he, can't, he just can't go any farther. He's spent. And Simon's given the cross to carry it the rest of the way. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is just a ceramic jar. Have you ever been to an archaeological site in the museum that's on that site? And you got the artifacts that they found there. And they have these ceramic jars in there. That's a potsherd. And it's, there's not one ounce of moisture in that thing. It's so brittle. Just a slight touch and that thing just crumbles. Jesus was just spent, drained, completely drained of strength. And my tongue, verse 15, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, which Jesus fulfilled in John 19, 28, when he said, I'm thirsty. And he's given a sponge full of sour wine, put on a branch of hyssop and brought to his mouth. And you lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. This is an amazing text right here, because the crucifixion, the practice of it, wasn't even invented yet when David wrote this. Wait 500 more years before the crucifixion was invented. But yet David writes about it, they pierced my hands and my feet, and Jesus' hands feet are nailed to a cross. And then in John 20, 25, Thomas, one of the disciples, after Jesus is resurrected and appears to them, he says, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then he does, and he falls down and says, my Lord, my God, you are the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus fulfills this. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look at 
They look, they stare at me. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You remember when, the, when Jesus, well, this was fulfilled, recorded in John 19, 24 through 25. You remember what it says, Then the soldiers took at his outer garment. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, pointing back to Psalm 22. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Do you think maybe the soldiers knew Psalm 22, and they're like, hey guys, let's fulfill Psalm 22, and let's go ahead and take this, this, this tunic, not tear it, and let's cast lots for it so it's fulfilled? I, I don't think so. It happened because God said it was going to happen. From eternity past, he had the plan already in place, and it was done. Verse 19, before I go there, do you remember an Old Testament character who was surrounded by a band of evildoers, his garment was stripped from him and he was thrown into a pit, left in a pit to die? Who was that? It was Joseph. Joseph was a prototype of Jesus to come. Unfortunately, I don't have time to deep dive in that, but how amazing is that? All throughout the Old Testament, characters and situations pointing to this moment when Christ would hang on a cross for our sins. Verse 19, after the suffering, we have the cry. I mean, I've titled it the cry because sometimes it's all you can really do. And you know what? That's okay. God hears you. And he cries alongside you. He comforts you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. Remember verse 1, you've, why have you forsaken me? Verse 11, be not far from me. Verse 19, be not far off. You still have this feeling of just feeling like you're left out to dry on this. You got nothing left, so I'm just going to weep. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog, the paw of the dog. Deliver my soul from the sword. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. And then after we've had that good cry, and we remember scripture. Sometimes we're still in that suffering, but now we're strengthened. And that's one of the reasons why we go through that suffering. God's working on you and building in you. He is using it for your good. I know it's backwards, but this is what God does. It's the way he works with his people. And... Then you come into the next place is where we're supposed to be in suffering. This next section, verse 22 through 24, is what I've titled the hope. We enter into the hope. Maybe your suffering does end, and then what do you do at that point? You want to tell everybody about what Jesus has done for you. What God, man, I have been there. My soul was, my heart was crushed, but God came through on the other side. I made it through the other side. Praise the Lord. Let me come alongside you and help you. Let me tell everybody about what God has done for me. But you know what? Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes 
It never goes away, that suffering. But it will one day for those who are in Christ. Absolutely. So verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Absolutely you would. And in fact, Jesus uses verse 22 in Hebrews 2.12 as an expression of his praise to God for delivering him from death in answer to his prayer. And then in verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. One of my favorite psalms is, I love the Lord because he hears me, period. Not because he does what I've asked him to do. I, I love him because he hears me when I just cry out to him. That's what he's saying here. He cried to him for help and he heard. Now I want to pause at this section here and I'd like us to go to Luke. So if you have your scripture there, go to Luke chapter 23. Remember I was saying that if you give me the liberty to imagine a little bit, imagine with me, we're at the scene of the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says these first, the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Luke 23, we see, starting in verse 39, the sign, this is the king of the Jews, is over Jesus. Remember that we read in Matthew, excuse me, both criminals were hurling insults at Jesus. But somewhere along the way, one of those criminals, one of those thieves, changed his tune. Could it be that perhaps when Jesus started singing this song, that thief was well-versed in the Old Testament, that he was well-taught in the Scriptures, and that he knew this song by heart, and he knew other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, not just the ones listed in Psalm 22, but he's watching Jesus fulfill what's happening the casting of lots for the garment. Um, Everything that we just looked at in 22, fulfilled. And then at one point, one point of the song, we had just read, you who fear the Lord, praise him. And so we see here, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You see, this thief realized, I have right before me right now that I've been watching, Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, fulfilling Scripture right before my eyes. Stop it. Do you not even fear God? Because we're about to stand in front of a holy God in judgment. Hebrews says that it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment for everybody. And he knows it. Within minutes, maybe hours at best, he's standing before God. 
And in verse 41, he says, And indeed, we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. See, we have the thieves who deserve to be hanging, but Jesus, of whom he just said he'd done nothing wrong, of whom the satyrian said, this man was surely innocent, of whom Pilate said at least six times, I find no guilt in this man, of whom Judas said, I've shed innocent blood, of whom the demons say, the most high God, the most holy, holy one of God. He was innocent. What was he doing there? What, was Jesus, what business did Jesus have hanging on the cross then? The reason why Jesus was there is because of you and me. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God could have answered with your name. That's why. All of us is why Jesus was there. Is what's called a substitution. A substitution needed to take place on that hill, on our behalf. We had the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, and the Lord warned them and said, do not eat of this tree or you shall surely die. And ever since then, people have been dying. We all die. The wages of sin is death. That is the reason why we die. We have the sin virus that we cannot get rid of, and there has to be payment for that. And so at the garden, to cover their shame, a sacrifice was made, and then sacrifices of an animal were instituted within the nation of Israel, but they were not sufficient to once and for all pay the penalty of sin. But why blood? Leviticus says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so once a year, they would on the day of atonement, they would make that sacrifice, but it would push back the wrath of God one more year, one more year, one more year, just constantly sacrificing the blood of animals, which was not upon their own will. It wasn't sufficient. You needed a willing, perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus fulfilled that by being the willing, perfect sacrifice to live the life that we could never live, sinless, and then was put up on that cross. If he comes down, who goes back up there? We do. We go back up there. Could we be saved if Jesus never died on the cross and was resurrected? No. All we would be are very sorry people wallowing in our sin under the conviction of the law and our consciences. Just miserable, with no way for a substitution to, to make, to remedy the problem that we were in. But Jesus did it, and through the substitution, so he took our place on that cross. He took our place in order to propitiate the wrath of God. Now, that's a big word, but <clears throat> essentially... To hopefully make this easy would be an example. I'm driving down the road at a red light. I stop at the red light. Thanks so much, brother. I stop at a red light. Someone rear-ends me, damages my car. I pick up the phone. I call my buddy, Mike Cooper. Mike Cooper goes to insurance guy. 
to the insurance company. They send me a check. They pay for the damage. They pay for the reparations, the damages done to my car. An expiation is made. <clears throat> now change the scenario. Driving down the street at a red light, stopped. A drunk driver rear-ends me, damages my car, injures my child, and puts him in the hospital. I call Mike Cooper, calls the insurance company, and they, and they send me a check to pay for the damages, some medical bills. I'm still out of pocket, most likely. But am I truly satisfied? Do I feel like justice was served? Do I feel like that check from the insurance company satisfied my wrath against that drunk driver? Absolutely not. What I'd rather do is go the Sicilian in me and take a baseball bat and walk this gentleman into an alley, which of course I wouldn't do. But that would satisfy my wrath. That would propitiate my wrath of justice for what he did. This is what happened on the cross. Our sin is an offense to God, a holy God. We are sinful humanity. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And somebody had to be that perfect sacrifice in the blood because the life's in the blood to propitiate the wrath of God on our behalf. Romans 5, 9, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Because... You see, Jesus is not still dead, though he did die. I <clears throat> led a team to Israel about 10 years ago. We were sharing the gospel on the streets of Tel Aviv. I'm sharing with a Jewish man, dear Jewish man, and he starts yelling at me, very angry with me, for telling him about Jesus, the Messiah, to go to Lebanon, get out of here. And as he's walking away, I, the only thing that came to my mind was, Jesus died for you. And he turned around and said, tell me where to send the flowers. I didn't have time to open up the word of God to show him this. <clears throat> Jesus fulfilled so much of scripture. His Messiah has already come. Now we know it's the work of the Holy Spirit in order to save, but I would love to have time with him. And you know what? There's nowhere to send the flowers because Jesus is alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, victorious over death. That's why we put our faith in him so that when we die, we are saved forever. Praise God. We're reconciled back to him. And so we have atonement <clears throat> at this point. The wrath of God's propitiated atonement takes place. Atonement is at one meet, is the definition of atonement. It's when two parties are at odds with one another, and there's, there's an amends or reparation made for those two parties that are at odds with one another. They come to one meet, to one meeting, and they are reconciled together. So through Christ's sacrifice, we are now declared righteous and reconciled back to God. How amazing is that? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you, 
It's the first time maybe you've heard it, or you're like, okay, this finally makes sense to me. What a great day to just believe in the the work of Jesus Christ, what he did on your behalf. Would you rather be on the cross? Any takers on that one after going through Psalm 22? And then rely on your own righteousness as you stand before holy God to vindicate yourself? The Bible says our righteous works are like filthy rags to God. It's not going to cut it. We need Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. That's our prayer to you. We pray for you, genuinely. We pray for you if you don't know Christ yet. But that wherever you're sitting, that you would just, like the criminal on the cross, just, I got nothing. Because look at the rest here. So on Luke 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me. That's all the thief had. Remember me. He's got nothing left. I, I am placing my faith upon your mercy and grace, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. What an amazing text. And so our question of this psalm today is, am I forgotten in my suffering and is it the end of my story? For those of you not born again yet who have not placed your faith in Christ, suffering's just the beginning of the story. I'm sorry for the blunt delivery, but it's what Scripture says. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Come to Christ. We just went to Kentucky to look at the ark experience. Phenomenal. I highly recommend it. But I was reminded there, I mean, you have Noah and his family, the only righteous family on the planet, And judgment is coming. Noah, build the ark. And God sends animals into the ark until the last animal was in, and then he shuts the door himself, and then judgment comes. There's another, friend, there's another time when there's going to be another judgment, and it's coming yet future. Get into the ark, so to speak, by placing your faith in Christ until that door shuts. There's no time to waste. There's no neutral zone. Uh, The scripture says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Listen. But he who does not obey the Son by believing in him will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, there's no neutral zone while you figure it out. The wrath of God abides on you until you come to the cross and receive that free gift. Now for the saved, am I forgotten in my suffering and is this the end of my story? Not even close. This is not the end of the story. And so we have the last part of this chapter here, verses 25 through 31, which I've titled The Victory and the Praise and Worship. This is our end. It's not even the end. It's the beginning of eternity. And here we have a picture of the millennial kingdom, the physical reign of Jesus for a thousand years after the rapture and the tribulation, will reign with Christ. Verse 25. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because verses 1 through 24, Jesus fulfilled. The song's not over yet. We still have 25 through 31. 
For you comes my praise in the great assembly, verse 25 in Psalm. Notice the future tense here. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Love that verse. And all those who go down to the dust will bow before him. It's going to be another resurrection of those who died. In the millennial kingdom, they will be resurrected, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Generations will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. This is going to happen in the future. I mean, if the first part of the psalm was fulfilled, why not the last? Reference Revelation 20, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 25. I could keep going. But there will be a day when your suffering will end and we'll be face to face and he'll dry, he'll dry every tear and we'll be with him victorious. Praise the Lord for what he did. Not, and not anything that we did. For by grace, that God loved us first, that we've been saved through faith, so that we could have all of this. It's amazing. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word <clears throat> and how amazing it is, revealing what was done on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Jesus and be reconciled back to you. We do pray for anyone here who does not know you yet, that your spirit would bring life into this, into this person, and they would, they would receive this free gift that Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.